0: So I, this week I came across a super powerful story and I was like, I got to read this to you guys. So here it is. An atheist was walking through the woods and said to himself, what majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals. As he walked along the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. He turned to look and saw a seven foot grizzly charge toward him. He ran as fast as he could up the path. He looked over his shoulder and saw that the bear was closing in on him. He looked over his shoulder again, and the bear was even closer. He tripped and fell on the ground. He rolled over to pick himself up, but he saw that the bear was right on top of him, reaching for him with his left paw and raising his right paw to strike him. At that instant, the atheist cried out, Oh, my God. Time stopped. The bear froze. The forest was silent. As a bright light shone upon the man, a voice came out of the sky. You deny my existence for all these years. Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I to count you as a believer? The atheist looked directly into the light and said, it would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now, but perhaps you can make the bear a Christian. (laughs) Very well, said the voice. The light went out. The sound of the forest resumed. The bear dropped his paw. Brought both paws together, bowed his head and spoke. Lord, bless this food for which I'm about to receive from thy bounty. (laughs) Christ our Lord, amen. <laughs> now, it's a silly story, obviously, but it actually reveals something that we're all tempted to try to do, which is manipulate God. So let me ask you, are, are, you, are you a manipulator or are you a cooperator? Do you try to manipulate God or do you, do you try to, or do you strive to cooperate with him? See, the reality is we all have done one or the other and we all will do one or the other at different times. And what we do in the midst of temptation, maybe more than any other time, reveals if we are a manipulator or if we are cooperators. But before we get into all that, I want to review real quick. Because if if this is your first time, we're in the midst of a four-week series talking about something that we all have, we all struggle with, and honestly, we all hate, which is temptation. The reality is is none of us like being tempted by things we know that are unhealthy or hurtful. Therefore, we wish we could break the power and break the control of temptation in our lives. And what we've been discovering over the last few weeks is that defeating temptation in our lives, it isn't wishful thinking. It's actually a reality. However, it won't happen by just being more self-controlled because we've tried that. We've gotten inspired or convicted about something and said, I'm gonna grind my teeth and be more self-controlled with it. And then we just failed over and over and over again. We've discovered that in order to truly break break the power and control of temptation requires something many of us have never done before. It requires seeing some truths hidden behind the curtain of temptation that in the moment of temptation we either don't see, don't know, or don't remember. And so that's exactly what we're doing throughout this series. There's actually a crazy story in the life of Jesus recorded in the book of Matthew, which is in the first book of the New Testament of the Bible. And in Matthew 4, right at the beginning, uh, right as Jesus is getting ready to you know, publicly launch his, his mission, his heavenly father, the one who loves him, the one who sent him, led him to the desert, the nastiest place on earth, to be tempted by Satan himself, whom the writers of scripture define as God's enemy, your enemy, my enemy, the king of darkness, the father of lies, the tempter himself. Satan goes on to personally tempt Jesus three specific times in three specific ways. And what we're doing throughout the series is we're looking behind the curtain of Jesus' three temptations to see how Satan tempted him, what made these temptations so tempting for Jesus, and how Jesus ultimately ended up defeating all three temptations. Now, I believe... Every single temptation that we face can be linked to one of Jesus' three temptations. And hopefully, by discovering the truths behind the curtain of Jesus' temptations and seeing how he responded, we can begin to see what's behind the curtain of our temptations and get the strength and the leverage to defeat them as as well. Now, the reason this series is so important, regardless of where you're at on your journey, if you would call yourself a follower of Christ or not, if you say you put your faith in Jesus or not, the reason this series is so important, as we've discovered, is because behind the curtain of every temptation, There's more at stake than we realized. Over the last few weeks, we've discovered what what was at stake behind the curtain of Jesus' temptation to sin was his ability to be the perfect sinless Savior. It, It was ultimately our salvation. The forgiveness of our sins hung in the balance of what Jesus did when he was tempted. There's always more at stake than we realize. In the midst of temptation we, to, to, to sin, we naturally assume all that's at stake is all that we see what's right in front of us. But there's always more at stake than we realize. And could one of the reasons that we one of the reasons we give into temptation over and over and over be because we've never stopped to think about what's really at stake? I mean, what's potentially at stake behind the curtain of your biggest temptation? I mean, it could be numerous things, but I believe three things are always at stake. First, behind the temptation, your temptation to sin, your future is at stake. Secondly, your family, the people you love, and the quality of your relationship with them is at stake. And third, and maybe most importantly, your faith, your trust, and your confidence in God is at stake. Man, I hope. You're starting to really see over the last few weeks that doing whatever it takes to defeat temptation in your life is worth it because your future, your family, and your faith are way more important and way more invaluable than getting it whatever it is that you are tempted with. Last week, we looked at the first way that Satan tempted Jesus. We looked, at, we saw he was tempting Jesus to basically meet a legitimate need in a disobedient way. And then Jesus defeated this temptation because he saw the truth behind the curtain of it. He saw that this temptation to sin was really a test of faith. Today, we're going to look behind the curtain of Jesus' second temptation. And as we do, we're going to discover there's something much bigger yet extremely subtle going on behind our temptations that few of us ever recognize, which is not only giving temptation more and more power and control in our lives, but it's also negatively impacting us experiencing God's presence in our lives more than we can possibly imagine. And here's how Satan tempted Jesus a second time. Then the devil, after he couldn't get Jesus to fall to the first temptation, took him, Jesus, to the holy city, referring to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So the Jewish temple, you know, it's 200-ish feet tall, and it's at the epicenter of Jerusalem. And Satan, either literally or through a vision, we don't know from what we read here, took Jesus to the top of the temple so he can see the entire city, so he could see all the people in the city. People who, like you and me, had a broken relationship with their heavenly father because of their violation of sin against him. People who Father God loved so much that he sent Jesus to restore and redeem and reconcile back into relationship with him. People who Jesus came on a mission to save from the penalty of eternal death that they deserve because of their violation of sin against Holy Creator God. People who would have to be so convinced that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was their Savior, that they would have to end up putting their faith in Jesus. People who Jesus knew would not be easy To convince of that. Now, Satan knew all this. And he used the purpose that Father God sent him to tempt him. He says, if you are the son of God. Because that's who you say you are, Jesus, right? It's like he's taunting him. If you are the son of God, well then, throw yourself down. Jump. And then he says, for it is written. See, Satan does something really, really tricky right here. He quotes a passage from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, found in the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 91. Last week we saw that Jesus responded to Satan's first temptation with a truth from God recorded in the Hebrew Scripture. And Satan's going, all right, I'll play that game because I know the Bible too. Here's a promise from your heavenly Father that since you're the Messiah, since you're the Son of God, since you're the Savior, that he's got to come through on. And he quotes, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's like you saying, hey, Jesus, listen, look at all those people. It's going to be hard to convince these people you're the son of God. It's going to be hard to convince them you're the the savior, you're their savior. But if you jumped off right now, your heavenly father would send angels to save you. And if they saw that, those people would know for sure. Listen, this is going to be a whole lot lot easier than you having to die on the cross thing. You don't need to go through all that suffering. And you shouldn't have to go through all that if your heavenly father really loved you. Satan's so tricky. So tricky. He's misusing. He's misinterpreting. He's distorting the promises and the truths of God to tempt Jesus to sin. To disobey his heavenly father. And by the way. If Satan did that with Jesus, you can guarantee he's doing that with you. Look, he promised to protect you. Look, he wants you to be happy. I mean, look, he he wouldn't want you to suffer. Look, he'll come through for you. Look, he'll forgive you. Look, he wants you to prosper. Look, everything's going to work out because he loves you. And Satan, he misuses truth to lie to you. He distorts truth in order to tempt us to sin. Now, Jesus knew the real temptation was not what was right in front of him because it never is. See, the real temptation for Jesus was to manipulate, to force, to assume on God, to act on his behalf. Father God sent Jesus on a mission to die in our place as a sinless, perfect sacrifice to atone for our penalty of sin against Him. But in order to do that, Jesus knew He would have to go through the worst imaginable physical and emotional anguish. He knew He would have to be arrested. He would have to be beat. He would have to be whipped. He would have to have his hands stretched out and his feet crossed, and have nails put through his hands and his feet. And he'd have to on a cross and have to be hung up and die on a cross. And furthermore, he knew he'd have to go through an emotional, uh, an extreme amount of emotional anguish that in order to take on our sins, his heavenly father would have to turn his back on him and he would have to take on those sins all by himself. And Jesus knew that was his father's plan. But what you got to know is that Jesus did not want to go through all that physical and emotional anguish. And we know this because the night Jesus was arrested, which led to his crucifixion the next day, Jesus is in the garden. He's in a garden, and he's praying, and he's crying out to his heavenly father, if there's any other way, and he's in such anguish over this, he's sweating blood. If there's any other way to accomplish the purpose and the mission that you sent me for, make a way. He didn't want to go through all this, and that is what made this temptation so tempting. Jesus is tempted to go, man, if I jump, if I jump, my heavenly father won't have any option but to send an angel to save me. And then maybe I won't have to go through all that. Now, as you already know, Jesus didn't give in to this temptation to sin. And I believe one of the reasons he didn't was because he knew what was at stake behind the curtain of the temptation to manipulate his heavenly father. He knew what was behind the curtain, once again, was our salvation. If Jesus jumped... Father God probably would have sent angels to save him. And at that moment, everyone watching would have known he was the Son of God. Because of that, the Jewish religious leaders, who are the Pharisees, wouldn't have arrested him for the heresy that led to his arrest and ultimately his sacrificial death on a cross for them and for us. See, by forcing God's hand, everyone would have known in that moment that Jesus was divine. But he would have never accomplished the purpose that his heavenly father sent him for of dying on the cross for us. See the real temptation? The real temptation for Jesus was to put his heavenly father in a position with absolutely no options. The real temptation was to try to manipulate God to surrender to a different agenda. The real temptation was try to control the outcome by forcing his heavenly father's hand. The real temptation was to make it all about himself instead of the purpose that he was sent for. Instead of you and me, hidden behind the curtain of our temptations, there's a more subtle yet destructive temptation. And that temptation is to try to manipulate, to force, or to assume on God. And it sounds like this I can do whatever I want, because I'm forgiven. I can date who I want. I can have sex with who I want. I can buy whatever I want. I can satisfy myself however I want. I can treat people however I want. I can take on as much debt as I want. I can drink as much as I want. I can study as much or as little as I want. I can work as hard or as little as I want. I can act however I want. And God is obligated to bless me, save me, forgive me, provide for me, prosper me, bail me out. Because he's promised he loves me. How's that working out for you? Probably not too well. Jesus knew manipulating his heavenly father to act on his behalf wouldn't work out too well for him or for us either. So here's how Jesus responds to Satan's temptation. Jesus answered him, it is also written. It's like Jesus trumps him. Do not put the Lord God to the test. He's going, Satan, you ain't coming up with nothing new here. And Just like with his first temptation, Jesus once again reaches back in history to a time when the Israelites were faced with the same temptation by quoting a passage in the Old Testament. This time he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. And to grasp the power of of Jesus' response, you really need to understand the context of what's going on in Deuteronomy 6. We discovered last week the events of Deuteronomy actually happened about a 1,000 years, a little over a 1,000 years before the life of Jesus. And last week we saw that for hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Deuteronomy was written, God had promised the Hebrew people who became known as the Israelites, who became known as the Jews, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And part of that promise was that he would give them their own land, referred to as the promised land. However, for 400 years, the Israelites found themselves as slaves in Egypt. And as you can imagine, the longer they're slaves, the more their trust in God God kind of wavered. Finally, after 400 years, God sent a man named Moses to deliver them from slavery in Egypt and lead them to the promised land. Well, after Moses led them out of Egypt through a series of what can only be described as supernatural events. By the way, you should read about those in the book of Exodus. They're absolutely amazing. After God led them out through these, Moses led them out through these supernatural events, God gave them some laws and commands on how to live as his chosen people and for him to be their one and only God. If you narrow down what God was trying to communicate to the Israelites through these laws and commands, it was trust and obey. Trust me, obey me. Trust and obey. And this came with the promise. If you trust and obey me, I will bless you. I will bless you in such a way that everyone will know that I am the one true God and you are my people. And the Israelites, they started off strong. But it didn't take long for them not to trust and obey. So instead of taking them immediately to the promised land, God led them to the desert. And in the worst and nastiest place on earth where there was very little food and very little water. And he led them there to wander for 40 years. Every single day they didn't know what they would eat. Every single day they didn't know what they would drink. Every single day they didn't know how they would survive to the next day. They were utterly helpless, which was the whole point of God leading them there. God led them to the desert and kept them there for 40 years to teach them to trust him alone. To teach them that he could be trusted to provide for their every need and he would provide for their every need if They obeyed him. And God did provide for their every need. While they were in the desert, God literally provided food from heaven that they called manna. And we talked about that all last week. I'm not going to recap all that. You should go back and listen to the message if you weren't here. They learned a valuable lesson through the manna. As God provided this manna every single morning and they found this bread-like stuff on the ground where they could eat, they, 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 they learned a valuable lesson that when we have a need, God provides. They learned to connect the dots that when they had a need, that they needed to trust and obey. And when they trust and obeyed, God provided. Well, the one thing that manna didn't provide was water. And as you know, you need water to live. You need water to survive. And as they became more thirsty, they had a decision to make. Decision one, trust God and keep connecting the dots. Decision two, try to manipulate God and force God to act on their behalf. And just like we're tempted to do, they chose option two. And in Exodus 17, we see the Israelites basically saying, God, you promised you would provide for us as your people. You're not doing what you promised you would do. We, we would have been better off staying as slaves in Egypt. I mean, why did you set us free to let us die here in the desert of, of thirst? If you really love us, God, prove it. Now, you may never said it out loud, but you ever thought that? I mean... You ever thought, God, if you really loved me, God, if you really loved me, you'd heal me. God, if you really loved me, you'd give me more. If you really loved me, I wouldn't be suffering. If you really loved me, you'd take the pain away. Why, God, why me? I mean, how often do we guilt trip, guilt trip God to try and get something from Him, to try to force Him to act on our behalf? For those of us who are parents, based on everything that you've already given your children—food, shelter, clothing, devices, an opportunity to play sports, rides—how'd it make you feel if your kids came to you and said, "Mom and Dad, if you really loved me, you need to do something else." It Make you mad and make you sad. How do you think it makes our Heavenly Father feel when we do this? Parents, what would you do if your kids pulled that tactic on you? Mom and dad, if you really love me, you know what you do? You tell them they were entitled little punk, you'd ground them, and you'd take as much away from them that you've already given them. And yet somehow we don't think that's what God should do. God should have opened a can on them, but instead, He supernaturally made water come from a rock for them to where they all drank. Not because they manipulated him into it, but because this was a key time in their history that he was proving he was the one true God and that he could be trusted. So he provides water and essentially says, come on, come on, trust me, trust me, trust and obey now, in the ancient world, naming locations, it was a common custom to remind people of, what, of, of certain things, of special things that happened at different locations. And Moses, he didn't name the place where water flowed from the rock God provides. Because God had already proved he provides. He named the place Massa. And the word Massa means tested. So from that point forward, whenever the Israelites heard the name Massa, whenever they saw Massa, whenever they traveled through Massa, they would remember that this was a place that they did not trust and obey. They would remember it was a place that God was angry with them because of how they tried to test and manipulate him. After 40 years in the desert, After they finally learned to trust and obey, Moses gathers all the Israelites together before they're able to enter the promised land to remind them of a few things. And Deuteronomy is essentially the speech that he gave to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. And in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, Moses reiterated what God wanted to teach them at Massa. He said, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Instead... Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and the decrees he's given you. Moses is saying, listen, God has plans for you. God has purposes for you. And they're better than yours. And they're more life-giving than yours. In the future, when you get to the promised land, and when, when things aren't going your way, In the future when you're not getting everything you want when you want it. In the future when God's plans and purposes don't seem to be aligning with your plans and purposes. In the future when your agenda seems to be different than God's agenda. Don't test him. Don't do what you did at Massa. Don't try to manipulate and force and assume on him to act on your behalf. Instead, remember Massa. Choose to trust and obey by cooperating with him, by surrendering your will to his. Because when you do as you learned at Massa is when you'll experience his perfect plans, purposes, provision, presence in your life. Over a thousand years later, there Jesus and Satan stood on top of the temple. Satan's going, Jesus is going to be hard to convince Him. But if you jumped, if you jumped, you shouldn't have to go through all that suffering. If your heavenly father loved you, you shouldn't have to go through that. Jesus knew what Satan was really tempting him to do was to manipulate God to act on his behalf. Satan knew that giving into this temptation would be a sin. And because of that, Jesus knew what was really at stake behind the curtain of this temptation was his ability to be your and my perfect, sinless Savior. So he reaches all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, all the way back to Massa, and he responds. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to manipulate my heavenly Father. I'm not going to try to force him to surrender his will to mine. I'm not going to assume on him to act on my behalf. Instead, I'm going to cooperate with his plans and his purpose. I'm going to surrender to what he wants, how he wants it, when he wants it. And I'm going to trust him with the outcomes of all of that. The big idea I hope that you remember from today is that the decision behind temptation is will I manipulate or cooperate? Behind the curtain of our temptations, there is a decision. Decision one, will I manipulate, force, assume on God to act on my behalf, to bless me, to come through for me, to save me, to provide for me, to heal me, to give me what I want, to prove his love for me, or will I strive to cooperate with his plans, his purposes, his ways, and his will? Which, by the way, when you think about it, trying to manipulate God is just an idiotic thing to do. It's futile because he can't be manipulated. He cannot be manipulated by us. So when we try to manipulate him, all we end up doing is fighting with him. And when we try to fight with the creator of the universe, who do you think wins? We lose every time. We're the ones that are negatively affected by that, not him. Since he can't be manipulated anyway, I think the best option is to strive to cooperate. And it's the best option because when we choose to try to manipulate our heavenly father, we sin against him. And the writers of scripture and Jesus are very clear on what sin does. Sin hurts our relationship with our heavenly father. Guys, there's so much more at stake than we realize. Here's the truth that Satan does not want you to know. He does not want you to know that experiencing God's purposes, plans, and presence in our lives are at stake behind the temptation of trying to manipulate God. When we give into the temptation to manipulate, you know what we're saying? When we give in the temptation to manipulate and force and assume on God, what we're saying is, I want my purposes, I want my plans to be done over yours. When we do that, we hurt the relationship in such a way that we don't experience his perfect purposes and plans in our lives. And let me just ask you, do you think that your plans are better than his? You really think your purposes are better than his? I mean, whose plans and whose purposes do you think are going to be best for you? Best for your kids. Best for your future. Best for your relationship? Best for this world. Whose plans and whose purposes do you think are going to really produce true life and hope and peace and joy and fulfillment? Yours or Creator God's? Listen, I know what my plans have the potential to produce, and so do you. So, why would we try to continue to manipulate Him? So, let me ask you again Are you a manipulator? are you a cooperator? Do you try to manipulate and force and assume on God to act on your behalf? Or do you strive to cooperate with his plans, his purposes, his will, specifically in the midst of your temptations? Now, most of us would never admit we're manipulators, even if we think we might be manipulators. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. But since there's so much at stake behind this, I think it's at least worth seeing if you might be a manipulator. This is not an exhaustive list, but I just came up with a few indicators. You might be a manipulator if you're often mad at God. If you find yourself often mad and frustrated at God when he doesn't do things your way, come through how you expected him to come through, give you what you want, you might be a manipulator. By the way, because you know who acts like this, I didn't get what I want. You know who acts like that, immature, entitled children. Secondly, you might be a manipulator if you use scripture to support your agenda. If you've ever looked for verses or used verses to justify how you want to act... How you want to behave, you're trying to manipulate God. If you've ever looked for or you've ever used verses to say what God will do, you're trying to force God to act on your behalf. That is the definition of the prosperity gospel. God said, If I give, then He will give me tenfold. You're trying to manipulate God. If you've ever looked and if you've ever used verses to show what God will never do, you're trying to assume on God. I can sin. And look, God will never turn his back on me. He'll always forgive me. You're just trying to assume on God. You might be a manipulator if you play the if you, then I game with God. Oh, God, if you get me out of this, if you give me this, if you come through for me here, then I'll serve you, then I'll start giving, then I'll believe, then I'll stop, then I'll start. All that is is trying to manipulate God by cutting deals with him. And finally, you might be a manipulator if you frequently find yourself asking, why God? Why me? Why did I get cancer? Why can't we get pregnant? Why them and not me? Why won't you stop the pain? Why didn't you save them? Why me? Because let's be honest, when we ask that question... We're not really looking for an answer, are we? None of us are looking for an answer to that question. We're asking it because we think that we do or don't deserve something. And by asking it, we want God to change it for our benefit. Now, the reality is is when you look at this list, you can see. We've all tried to manipulate God at times, haven't we? And there's so much at stake here that I hope you want to go, I need to start striving to cooperate. The question is how? How do we cooperate with God? And it can all be narrowed down to one word. And that one word is surrender. And here's how surrender sounds. I'm surrendering my ways my plans, my purposes, my agendas, my wants, my needs for yours. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to force you to surrender your will to mine. I'm not going to assume on you to act on my behalf. I'm not going to try to control you. Instead, I'm going to cooperate with your plans and purpose. I'm going to surrender to what you want, how you want it, when you want it. I'm going to surrender control to you. I trust and I trust you with the outcomes of that. Now here's the deal. This isn't always easy. It isn't always easy, but it is always worth it because behind the curtain of surrender is something amazing. Behind the curtain of surrender is God himself. God's plans, God's purpose, most importantly, God's presence are behind our choice to Surrender to Him. And whether you know it or not, whether you'd admit it or not, you want to experience God's purpose and plans in your life because they're so much better than yours. But you'll never experience His plans, you'll never experience His promises, you'll never trust that His promises and His plans are better than yours without surrender and you want to experience God's presence in your life because it's in his presence that we find true joy true peace true hope true fulfillment but you never experience that without surrender and this is what you need to know and if anyone's ever told you differently they've lied to you God hasn't promised That everyone will experience his perfect plans in their life. God hasn't promised that everyone will experience his perfect purposes in their life. God hasn't promised that everyone will experience his life-giving presence unconditionally in their life. He's just promised to forgive us. God promises his perfect plans... Purposes and presence are for those who are surrendered. The decision behind temptation is, will I manipulate or cooperate? The choice to cooperate comes down to the one word, surrender. But here's the deal. If you wait until you're in the midst of your biggest temptation to try to surrender, you won't. The only way you'll ever do it in the midst of your biggest temptation, the only way you'll ever trust that surrender is the best option in the midst of your biggest temptation, is if you have practiced surrendering before that time and experienced what's behind the curtain of it before that time. you got to know, the first time Jesus surrendered was not when he was on top of the temple with Satan. He was practiced up. It wasn't like he's like, you know, I should try this surrender thing. It sounds like a good idea for the first time. If you want temptation to lose power and control in your life, if you want to defeat temptation in your life, I encourage you to start practicing surrendering right now in every single area of your life, in every decision, in the big and the small, in every relationship, financially, relationally, sexually, when you're at home, when you go out, when you're with your boyfriend or girlfriend, start practicing surrender in every single area of your life today so that you have the strength to do it in the midst of your biggest temptation. And here's what it sounds like. Here's what surrendering sounds like. God, not my will, but yours be done. And the posture is open hands. Fast forward, Jesus in the garden, the night he was arrested, and he's saying, Heavenly Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I choose that way. But Heavenly Father, not my will, But yours be done. You know what choosing to surrender is? It's a declaration of trust. I trust you. And you may not trust him fully right now, and whatever is going on. It's through the process of surrender that we that we come to know that he is trusted. You don't pray your way to trust. You surrender your way there. Because it's through surrender that we experience his perfect plans, purposes, and presence in our life. So let me ask you one more time Do you try to manipulate God to act on your behalf? Or do you strive to cooperate with him? Listen, be honest. Be honest with yourself, not to feel guilty, but to take a step forward. If you're honest enough to admit that you try to manipulate God at times, I know I do, I invite you to start surrendering in every area of your life today, in every situation today, in every circumstance today, in every relationship today, in every temptation today. (sighs) Not my will but yours be done. Because behind the curtain of surrender is everything you truly want and everything you truly need. Behind the curtain of surrender is God himself. And when we do this in the midst of temptation, what you'll begin to see is that temptation will begin to lose all its power and all its control in your life. Before I pray over you and we get out of here, I just... I uh, want to say one quick thing to, if you, if, for those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, never asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sin and lead your life. Something that may have stopped you now that you hear this message, something may have stopped you from doing that is that you've been trying to manipulate God. God, if you do this, if I see this, if you come through in this way, then I will put my faith in you. And let me just tell you what, your heavenly father is going to look back at you and say, I've already done everything for you. Nothing will be big enough for the biggest thing I've already done for you. And I sent my son to die for you. To take your spot for the death that you deserve because of your violation of sin against me. And I did it because I love you. So instead of trying to manipulate me, why don't you just start experiencing me? But that's going to take this from you. Saying, I surrender me to you. And today, you can surrender for the very first time by asking Jesus to be the forgiver of your sin and leader of your life. All right, I want to pray over all of us. But as I pray, even as you're sitting at home, will you do something weird for me? Will you just open hand, palm up. Let's pray with a posture of surrender. Dear Lord, right now as we have this posture of surrender, I pray that we choose to say not my will but yours be done in every single area of our life. And even as the temptations are on our mind right now and struggles are on our mind, I pray that this posture of surrender becomes not just something that we're doing right now, but becomes the posture of our life, not my will, but yours be done. And I pray through that, we come to experience your promises, your purposes, more importantly, your presence. For every person who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, right now, where they're at quietly, I pray that they ask you, they surrender to you by asking you to be the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life right now. Thank you for loving us, even when we don't surrender, for being patient with us, for always pursuing us. In Jesus' name, amen.